I'm Brendan McGibney of Odell Brewing Company, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Jason Perkins of Allagash Brewing, and he's here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at All About Beer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. All right. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Jason Perkins is the brewmaster and vice president of brewing operations at Allagash. Jason has been part of Allagash since 1999. He currently sits on the board of the Brewers Association, American Malt and Barley Association, and Allagash Wilderness Waterway Foundation and is actively involved with the Hop Quality Group. He is the chairman of the Brewers Association Technical Committee, a former board member of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, New England, as well as the Maine Brewers Guild, and is the recipient of the 2016 Russell Shearer Award, Award for Innovation in Craft Brewing. When Jason is not working, he enjoys hanging with his family, exploring the many beautiful wild places in Maine, and playing ice hockey. He lives in North Yarmouth, Maine, with his wife, Julie, and two children. Did I say Yarmouth properly, Jason? You did. Most people right. say Yarmouth. Yarmouth. So, yes, you got it. You want to get your beer? Yeah. Yeah, I figure, you know, I can't have a conversation with a friend without a beer. I love it. I'm having, uh, you remember these things? Remember these, these, these like hard amber looking things that hold beer? Yeah, we, we have a couple of those left. You can't see us. I figured I'd try a drink out of a bottle for old time's sake. Nice. Love it. All there right. Now that you got a beer, Jason, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with me today. I know I'm not alone when I say I have a tremendous amount of respect for what you've done and continue to do for craft beer. You're a true leader, both technically and culturally. Your expertise as a brewmaster is, is well known through the quality of your beer and your approach to innovation. Furthermore, you're quick to geek out with other brewers and you offer your insight to help others on their brewing journey. 
That being said, I'd like to touch base on your approach to team building. As an ice hockey player, you know uh, it takes more than one one person to to make a successful team. And we often talk about cultural similarities uh, at Allagash and Odell Brewing regarding culture. Um, I was hoping you could maybe speak to the importance of team team dynamics and how you've built that into the success of Allagash. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I guess first of all, I'll say like totally honored when I heard you asked me to join. There's a it's a pretty huge list of people you could have asked instead of me. So uh, I'm super honored that you uh, chose me. But um, so thank you for letting me join this fun little uh, chain letter of sorts. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, and I, I, as you noted, like uh, you and I have chatted a bunch of times over the years uh, of the kind of similarities in our two breweries and our organizations in terms of how we approach lots of things, you know, beer quality and people for sure. Mm-hmm. And so you've always been a great person to bounce thoughts off of and ideas off of. So, but in terms of team building, I, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly important. It's as important as anything to us here um, is keep, keeping the team cohesive, keeping the team connected, understanding what the motivations of the company are, what are, what's important here, getting feedback from the team. It's, it's not like, you know, it's not like, it's no, it's no one thing that makes that all work, you know? Uh, and we, because I've been here so long and when I started here, we were so small. It's like almost as we've grown, we've had to continue to evolve the way we, um, you know, do work with team building. I mean, there was a time that doesn't seem all that long ago that we'd all work the bottling line together for the day. Sometimes that day would be six hours. Sometimes it would be 14 or 15. And then we all ended at the same time. We all sat down and had a beer and that was the company meeting. You know, and that's probably the way it is at lots of breweries around across the country. Well, as you grow, like it, those opportunities become harder and harder to find. Um, and I remember some pretty distinct moments in our growth where we're like, wow, we're just not able to connect with the team the way we used to connect with the team because those moments aren't there anymore. And then you just have to work harder to find new ways to communicate, find new ways to get um, input from team members uh, and so on. And that's, I think, something we've not always been good at because sometimes there are moments where like, well, we're, we're really not doing that very well. We're not communicating to the team as well as we should. And then you figure out a new way to do it. And, you know, one thing I've learned on the communication side is it's not up to me what the best communication is. Like I may think, oh, wait a minute, we, we're, we're communicating in this way and that way. And it doesn't matter if the people receiving the information don't feel like it's being delivered to them in the right way, then we need to change it. So um, I guess the best way, um, you know, to continue to evolve is you just have to keep changing and finding new ways to connect with the team. Um, but we very much value the two-way communication. Like we want the team to know what the priorities are for for the brewery, but I want to hear, um, we have just so many talented people here in the team and I want to know what they think, what they think the be- the new and better way to do is do things here is. Yeah, you've done an amazing job cultivating that talented team. I mean, you've had some longtime folks there um, that that are really smart people like yourself, and and they're dedicated to what you're trying to do do it at Allagash. But that that change management, I mean, we've been on both sides of it. Like you mentioned, there was a time where you know when I started here in '95, there were only three of us, you know, in, in production, and you, you ripped out some beer, and then you hung out and had some beers, and then you went out and tried to sell some beers, and um, it was it was a fun time. It was a very entrepreneurial spirit. 
And then all of a sudden we found ourselves at, you know, 175 people. And it's a very different structure and very different system. Of course, we've added a couple of facilities, one including a restaurant, which makes things really complex. But uh, that change management is something that's that's always a challenge, whether you're growing or or shrinking down a little bit to get more efficient. Can you maybe talk about how you guys handle that or what what you've learned from change management? Because it, it's it's so different for every coworker. We always kind of struggle with making sure we're hitting each kind of learner or each kind of personality to make sure we are connecting because that communication, like you mentioned, it may work great for you or I to get it by email because that's, you know, that's the way we operate or something, but someone else may need a a face-to-face conversation to really hear you and and maybe not in a group setting. So then you're, you're having one-on-ones, but, um, that's one thing we have not really figured out the, the kind of golden goose, how, how to do that just the right way. I don't know if you guys have some strategies you could, you could share because all, all brewers are going through change, whether you're getting bigger or getting smaller or, you know, faced with challenges in the industry, it's um, change management is ever present when you're running a brewery. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and we have not figured it out either, for sure. I mean, there is, it's kind of one of those things. I don't think, I think if, if we attack it in a way that with a mindset that we will figure it out, then we're just going to, you know, just be batting our, beating our heads against the wall because you have to continue. That's the whole thing with change, right? You have to continue to change the way anything we're doing here, but, and certainly on the way we communicate with the team. We have different different personalities come and go. New people come to the team. People have been here a long time and you have to recognize that everybody listens and hears things in a very different way. Um, And it also is widely varying, as you referenced, depending on what the state of the company is. Like to some degree, when when we've had, just like you have, we've had some crazy years of growth, you know, where you're growing at these huge growth rates I mean, I, this is going to sound weird, but like, I don't really actually like that. Um, you know, I mean, I think yeah. some people would say that's, that's great. You know, we're making more beer, we're making more money, but it's tough to manage when you're growing at a super high growth, rate. It's really hard to keep, um, to keep in kind of in tune with those changes, especially around personnel, you know, getting people uh, hired the right way, getting people trained the right way, getting making sure they understand what's going on. You're basically just like holding on to the reins, just cranking that beer out. And, you know, I would also say that, you know, shrinking brings its own levels, uh, bits of challenges where you're making less beer than you did the year before. So, you know, a, a little bit of growth is always the right thing, right? And your approaches to managing a team are going to be widely variant depending on which of those scenarios that you're in. Yeah, it's interesting. Right now, we're, we're shrinking a little bit after having grown, you know, we were growing 12% a year for a decade, right? And there were some years that were, tw- you know, 25%. And yeah. we're, we're still just a regional independent craft brewer. Um, and that was crazy. It's like we look at it now as we're trying to get tighter and more efficient and shrinking a little. Uh, as those were like the glory days, right? Oh, I remember we were growing that, but it was brutal. I think we forget that, you know, you're working ungodly hours and and safety wasn't always the primary objective of the day. I mean, just going back to, you know, it's, it's embarrassing and awful to say, but thinking about the things 
we used to do as as startup brewers um, growing really quickly. It's like that. Of course, you wanted you cared about the safety of of yourselves and coworkers, but man, you had to just like you said, hang on because the volume right. demands were so great that you didn't want to miss an order, and you got to keep an eye on quality, train people up, and um, it was it was insane growing like that. But this shrinking is is a different challenge and. Um, fortunately we've been here before in terms of volume. So we have some systems and structures in place that we can look back upon, but that change management is no different. It's still extremely difficult. And, and like you said, there are different challenges when you're shrinking a little, and there's different challenges when you're growing a lot, <laughs> but they're all, they're all challenges. Yeah. I mean, you kind of reference it with safety, but one of the things when you're growing at super high rate, like I, one of the things I think it took me a while to understand what it was that made me uncomfortable about it. And that was, you don't have time to do things the right way, right? Yeah. Whether it's safety. I mean, you know, you do everything you can to be safe, everything you can to keep quality up. But the reality is you, especially when it comes to something like efficiencies, you know, safety yeah. should take, it should be number one all the time, of course, and then quality second to that. But efficiency is one of these things that, especially when you're crit, you just don't even think about it. You're like, just get it out, get it done. And one thing I like about, you know, l less growth is the ability to really, um, it's kind of one of my favorite things to do to figure out how to optimize, how to get better at what you're doing in all aspects of the business, you know, which is beneficial for everybody, whether that's reducing loss or, um, you know, working on TPOs or any of those things that just improve overall life at the brewery. When you're growing at that 20% growth rate, you just, you don't have the ability to look at that stuff. You're just right. focused on, on the speed of things. And um, so, yeah. How, how do you guys approach process improvement at the brewery? Do you, do you have a specified team that works on it or is it a collaborative effort? Is it just you coming down and saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try this. Let's see how it worked. Yeah. I mean, I try to set overarching goals for the team of things that we're trying to look at. Um, but those are pretty broad overarching goals. Like, like, you know, look, we can identify that this particular beer has a higher loss rate than another and let's figure it out. Or, you know, we want, well, let's try to reduce water usage in this area by X percent. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not best suited to dictate how that's done. You know, I, I just not, I'm not working day to day in that, in those areas anymore. And so, um, and you mentioned earlier that we've got a really tenured team here. We're super fortunate. I mean, the, the folks, you know, who lead specific areas here. So, you know, like Branch, who leads our brew house area, he's been here for, uh, you know, approaching 15 years. And Greg, our, our senior production leader, has been here for more than 15 years. So we have a bunch of people in those case, in those areas who have tremendous experience in each of those areas. And so they'll lead it. But then again, the team below them is also super talented. So right. um, I honestly try to stay out of the way um, other than saying these are areas we want to work on. Uh, and letting them kind of take it from there. You know, certainly CO2 use was a great example in the early days of the pandemic where, you know, frankly, we were pretty lazy about it because we could yeah. be. CO2 yeah. was cheap and in high supply. And then all of a sudden it wasn't cheap and it wasn't in great supply. And it's like, holy cow. Um, and that was kind of a forced <laughs> uh, efficiency project. Um, it's nice if you don't wait till you're forced to do something, but um so that was something to push down to the packaging team, push down to the seller seller team and made tremendous work in, you know, dialing in and bringing, bringing those levels down. Uh, what were some of the, what were some of the areas you, you attacked with CO2? 
specifically because I know a lot of brewers are struggling with the same thing, including ourselves. We went through a similar process of uh, dramatically reducing our CO2 usage because like you said, we weren't paying attention. It was really cheap and quite abundant. And then it wasn't. Um, One of the first things we did, which was, it seems kind of simple, but we just cataloged use. We created a spreadsheet that showed overall usage and then broken down by by amount and by percent in every area in the brewery. And some of those values were truly, truly accurate, like values that went through a flow meter somewhere. So we could say for every barrel of beer here, this is how much CO2 is used, or it was calculated like a, a purge we could roughly calculate even without a flow meter based on based on the size of the tank, for example. And then there was, and then you could, um, a couple other areas we used um, manufacturing data from the, say the can line manufacturer to say, this is what's used here. And so there was some assumptions made, but in the end we ended up on a number that accounted for hundred percent of this, of the CO2 used throughout the brewery. And that was pretty eye opening to see what the biggest usage areas were. And some were obvious can line, you know, underlid gas, stuff like that. But to yep. see it in raw data really said, okay, this is obviously where we need to focus uh, on reduction areas. Um, so closer monitoring purge times was a big one. I should back up and go further. We just, we did a full like audit of the whole facility with leak tests with a leak detector and, you know, just things like to making sure clamps were tight and all that kind of stuff. And that was hard to quantify how much we saved there, but there was savings there for sure. Yeah. Um, and then nitri- we've, we've incorporated nitrogen in a ton of areas, um, mostly around the packaging line, but in some tank purging and tank pushes. Nitrogen is in pretty, uh, it's very easy for us to get around here. We have a, a plant that generates it just about 30, 40 miles south of us. So it's pretty cheap and pretty readily available and super high quality. So versus getting a nitrogen generator, which some breweries did, we just yeah. put in a bulk tank and um, get it bulk delivered. Yeah, that's great. We, you, you and I talked about that a little bit. We didn't have the same nitrogen bulk supply nearby. Um, so we, we went the generator route and it's helped a lot. But, um, you know, you mentioned that you have nitrogen locally. That's not the only thing you get locally. Can you maybe speak to some of the some of your raw materials and such that you, you guys use in the brewing process that's uh, not proprietary or that you're yeah, willing no, to share? Honestly, not, not much proprietary here, but... Um... Uh, we, so yeah, we, so we've been buying some level of local ingredients since probably 2006, 2007, but in the early, early years, uh, of doing that, it was mostly fruit. Um, so we have a big, you know, wild and sour beer program here. Not, not quite as big as it used to be, but it's still a part of what we do here. And so we source all of our local fruit, cherries, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, et cetera, from farms in the state farms, pretty close to us. So that kind of was our first uh, dipping our toe into local ingredients. Not long after that, we started using some raw grains from, you know, some oats and some uh, unmalted wheat. But we had um, up until um, about 10 or so years ago, there was no, um, there was lots of barley grown in the state, um, but there was no malt houses here. So there was barley grown in the state, but it was being, and actually for, for malting grade, He's being sent up north to Canada um, to be malted in Canada and blended into big bins. So there was never any kind of available, isolated, main grown um, barley. Um, and then the couple malt houses opened in the state and things really changed pretty quickly uh, here. 
the same time, some other folks were doing work with just better processing for processing for um, food for grain for food use on the unmalted side. There's a long history of small grains growth here in the state. Oats and wheat have been grown here for a very long time and some barley, but a lot of it was for feed, not necessarily for for food of any kind. And so we kind of recognized that around 2016 that there was a huge opportunity. Um, there was a bunch of people growing the grains, but there was also a bunch of land becoming av available. Potato farming has historically been something fairly big here in the state. Um, not as big as Idaho, but still a pretty big crop for, for us up here in Maine. And that's actually what started barley being grown was as a rotational crop for potatoes because potatoes are not good for the land to grow in a, year after year. So barley was kind of worked in. But potatoes were getting harder and harder for the farmers. They weren't making much money on it. And so they were looking for other opportunities. Um, and, you know, we're obviously not the only brewery here in the state of Maine. we got a bunch of them here who are also interested in local agriculture. So things kind of moved along. And uh, we set a project in 2016 to, to, to target using a million pounds of Maine grown and processed. So malted or, or, or dried and bagged in all in the state by uh, 2021. So that was five years later at the time. In 2016, I think we were using about 60,000 pounds a year. So it was a pretty lofty, big goal, but we saw yeah. a promise there for it to change. And we knew that we knew that the capacity could be built with planning. So that was kind of part of our promise, if you will, to these farms and malt houses is we can't buy a million pounds a year right now, but in five years we want to, and we're going to grow ourselves there. And you build your businesses and, and, your fields around that plan. Um, and then at the same time, some other, there's a bunch of breweries in the state who, have, who are using uh, a ton of local grains. Um, you know, someone like Bissell Brothers here in Portland uses a ton of uh, main grown grains as well, as do a bunch of the small breweries. So it's been amazing to see the change here in the state in the last six or seven years in terms of the amount of acres of, of barley, uh, oats and wheat that are grown for brewers. Um, besides these malt houses, both both the two malt houses in our state have both expanded um, multiple times in terms of their capacity. They're still small, but they've been able to invest and hire more people and so on. So it's been super, as you can probably tell by my reaction, it's like one of the, one of the coolest things we've got to do in the last five years and something I'm super psyched to talk about. Yeah, oh, that's great, man. That's how involved are you guys with the with the malting? When do you get into the malt house and help them with? with specs or techniques or anything like that? Or are you just kind of giving them high level feedback? Yeah, we definitely give them specs and we talk through their process, but you know, they, even though they're new at they're they've gotten, you know, they, you know, there's some learning curves in the first couple of years, but um, then it's Blue Ox Malt House and Maine Malt House are the two malt houses in the state. And they both have gotten really good at what they're doing. Um, and so we can, we can, you know, we're an important uh, customer to them. And so we can right. say, you know, we need grains that hit these specs and, and they can do it. Um, so we don't necessarily get involved with the malt houses, although both do have floor malting operations to some degree. So we get to rake the grain when we go to visit them just for fun. That's always a cool photo op. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, we only do it once for the photo instead of, you know, them coming in at two in the morning and doing it themselves. So Exactly. It's, it's along the lines of jumping in the hop pile, except a little yeah. less itchy. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're a, uh, been a member of the hop quality group and, and AMBA 
So, and talking about the local agriculture, what do you think brewers can do to help build a long-term sustainable relationship with our agricultural partners the way you guys have in Maine? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you, re you referenced those two organizations. I think that's a great start. Both of those organizations are doing tremendous work. I mean, you, I think you were a founding member, right, of the Hop Quality Group? In the yeah, we got in there early on. Yeah, we came on a few years later, but um, just great organization doing great work. And AMBA on, is American Malting Barley Association on the, on the barley side, also doing tremendous work. And it's hard because uh, membership in those organizations is not something you can come back to an owner and say, there's a clear ROI for this. You know, if you pay these dues, then you know, it'll produce this for us. And so sometimes I think breweries can, especially in tough times that we kind of are in at the moment, sometimes hard to say, um, this is something we should be a part of, but, um, you know, Hop Quality Group has tiered membership for brewing sizes, as does AMBA. AMBA has associate memberships as well. So that would be my first thing is get involved because those organizations are doing, frankly, like totally thankless, like selfless work for the industry. Yep. It's not, you know, there's not, there's not a room full of people um, figuring out how to get the, the next best tops for themselves or, you know, get pricing benefit. These are, you know, if, if people who don't know these organizations, if you could be a fly on the wall and listen to the conversations, it's all about how do we, how do we make these crops more resilient for the future? How do we come up with the, what's best for brewers and so on? So if possible, like getting involved in those organizations is, is, is such a great way to support the ag side of our, our, our business. Yeah, it seems like over the last decade or so, a lot of brewers have direct contact with hop growers, um, just as, you know, as things have developed through selection or, or what have you, you know, interactions that CBCs or all that stuff, but malt seems to barley, malting barley seems to be this, this whole other big thing that is uh, viewed more as a commodity, I think amongst brewers, particularly smaller brewers that I've talked to. So I'd love to get your thoughts on like, how can, how can a really small brewer who maybe couldn't be part of this organization understand more of, of malting barley and, and what, what challenges we face ahead? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, malt, you know, barley malt is kind of um, almost taken for granted, I think, by a lot of people. Um, consumer side of things, you know, you, a, a savvy craft beer consumer could probably name, you know, 10, 15 hop bridles off the top of their head, um, but probably could, couldn't begin to tell you maybe even where barley is grown, what parts of the country it's grown in. So it is kind of, which is funny because it's obviously the largest poundage input by far in a, as, as an ingredient for beer and is the backbone of all beer and could not be more important, you know, but I, I hear you on the small side of things. I mean, I think supporting local growers, I mean, it's not the case in all of the country, but a good chunk of the country there, you know, I'm surprised the more and more I hear of, of places in like, even places like Texas or Georgia, where I wouldn't have historically thought there'd be you know, local grown barley or wheat available and and now there is i think you probably have don't have to look maybe not within your own state but probably most states in the u.s you can go a state over or you know a couple hour drive and and find a, a locally grown source of those grains and i think that's the best way to make a connection with that side of things because you know it's hard if you're a small brewer 
to get, you know, get the attention of one of the big malt houses and be able to get a good tour there and visit the fields and so on. But small farmers and small malt houses love, love to talk shop and, you know, being able to go out and see it in the field and potentially see it harvested and go to a malt house, like just, you can't beat that connection uh, with the farmers and the maltsters. Yeah, it is, it is cool to see all the smaller operations that have popped up over time in terms of malt houses or, or uh, local growers. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, that insight. Uh, we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of the conversation with Jason Perkins of Allagash Brewing. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back. And we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. So Jason, you've been in the in the craft beer industry nearly as long as I have about, you know, quarter century. Right. So, so what motivates you these days after so many years in the industry? Oh man, good question. I mean, I, I can't, I couldn't say enough how amazing the industry is and the friends that I've built up. I mean, I'll talk about Allagash specifically in a moment because I've obviously been here for a long time, but um, you know, just the connections that I've been able to make and, you know, to be able to, to be a part of such a wonderful industry that, you know, I would call, you know, people like you and people and other friends who are all across the country, like true friends of mine, who, even though I might only see them once a year, um, it's just such a wonderful community around it. And for the most part, I'm, there are, there are exceptions out there, but, you know, most brewery, craft brewery owners and people who work craft breweries really care deeply about their people and about doing the right thing. And, you know, obviously everybody needs to make money and needs to, you know, be a, a business that's, that can stay in business. But, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find another industry out there that cared as much about its community and its people. Um, you know, obviously we've got, as an industry got work to do, like everybody does to be better in that regard. But I still think that maybe people don't necessarily know the right thing to do all the time, but they want to do the right thing all the time, which I think is great. Um, and then Allagash, I mean, I've been here for the bulk of my career, uh, with the exception of, a, of two years at the beginning. Um, and, you know, it's been probably similar for you to be part of an organization that, that has grown over time, um, you know, cares about its people and, and cares about growing the right way, 
Um, you know, I'm, you know, we still have one owner here in Rob Todd, uh, who's the original founder, still the owner, still our president, CEO, whatever you want to call him, but still active every day and still a very good friend of mine. And, you know, I see eye to eye with the way he wants to grow. And um, so I've had kind of no reason to leave. Um, but, you know, more than that, like the people that we have here, I know it's super cliche, but, you know, the people who the people here who work at Allagash are what makes me motivated to come to work and fired up is like, even if I'm kind of like, you know, maybe having a rough day or, you know, feeling a little less inspired than I have been in the past, which everybody has those days, you know, you got a staff of people who are so inspired about making beer and doing, coming up with new stuff and new innovations. I just, it's like all of a sudden you, you kind of wake back up again and realize that, you know, I got to, got to figure out what made me passionate about in the first place. Cause everyone around me is in that way. So, um, so yeah, that's probably it in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. That's why I kind of started. Start, go ahead. Don't forget about the beer. The beer is also pretty, pretty great. <laughs> that's probably another reason why I'm still in it. That That's why I started with the, uh, the team building piece, because I know how, how important your team is to you and how, how that does bring you juice. And I find myself in the, in the same boat. I mean, we have, we have a broad portfolio of beers here. So it's kind of always a challenge to do the next R and D come up with the next thing. And, and you guys, have, I'm always envious that, that you're able to just zero in on this one beautiful brand. That's, you know, one of my favorite beers and one of a lot of people's favorite beers. Um, but the beer, like you said, it, it can get tedious at times when you, you know, I love nothing more than having a beer at the end of the day. I have one every day. Um, but the people, the building, building the teams and working with the folks in the industry that we get to work with, not only on the brewing side, but, you know, we get to the raw material side. There's amazing people there too, you know, and, and our distributor partners and retailers. And it really has been an incredible industry uh, throughout our run, but it's changing rapidly right now, it seems. And it's, uh, there, there are new challenges that are not as gradual as they used to be. Whereas, you know, you'd see a trend kind of developing and you could make some adjustments and um, I don't know, maybe you could speak to what, what it's like being a, a independent. I mean, there's not a lot of us anymore, honestly, that are hundred thousand barrels ish that are independent regional or local brewers. What, what does the future hold for, for independent brewers? Do you think there's, there's room for more and more? Do you think we've kind of we're saturated at this point. You think consolidation's inevitable? Just love to hear your take on how the industry's changed and and what you see ahead. Yeah, I mean, no doubt, things are definitely changing rapidly and are uh, unpredictable. That's the other thing. Like, you know, I think the whole world got real unpredictable in March of 2020, and hasn't. We keep waiting for it to get back to some level of unpredictability, but it yeah. just doesn't seem seem to be in the horizon, you know, whether that's in the beer industry or in um, the society at large, like, it's just hard to predict what what's coming. Like, you know, we joke all the time about what's next, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of locusts, I don't know, right, what the next thing is. It's like, it's hard. It's, a, it's unbelievable, how like one curveball after another. Um, so, you know, the industry is still tremendously fun, but it's, it's, it's harder than it's ever been. You know, uh, even when we were smaller and struggling for other reasons, it's just, uh, you know, running a business in general. And I'm not just saying it's not just beer. It's everybody. I think uh, it's a challenging time for sure. 
and you know layer in on top of that the consumer choices for alcoholic beverages seem to be as unpredictable as anything else and constantly changing and so on um so we we talk a lot about what's next for uh you know wh what's the next thing for allagash what's the next thing for the industry and no one has any answers for sure um you know, I think it, it is, uh, you know, Odell and Allagash and some other breweries uh, are like us that are still independent and still around our size, I think is particularly challenging. You know, we're in a way kind of in this middle ground, right, of like, we're not super small, um, which I'm not saying that's easy. Don't get me wrong. That has its own challenges. But, you know, you're a little focused on a small local market or whatever. You know, we're competing, if you will. Uh, I know this not as much competition in beer as there is in other industries, but we're still competing with breweries that are two times, five times, 10 times, 20 times bigger than us. We're in that same kind of competition and, and we don't have that scale, but we also right. don't have the super small, uh, you know, where the, you know, sexy new brewery that's got this, you know, hard to get beer. Like we're not in that range either. So I think it's particularly challenging for, breweries of our size and type. Um, but I still think that there's 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 room for for us to continue to to thrive, um, tell our story about who we are and make sure people understand what what's the the value in supporting a brewery like Odell. Um, you know, there's a whole list of things we could talk about and reasons for that. I think there's value there. Um, but do I think that a lot more breweries are going to get to roughly the size of Odell and Allagash? No, I don't. I think it's going to be real challenging. Not impossible, but challenging. Do I think there's room for independent craft breweries that are smaller? Absolutely. I do think. I think that's very much going to be regionally specific. And, you know, in a, in a market, you know, Portland, Maine, for example, maybe not the greatest idea to open another brewery in this market. Um, but in, you know, an hour south north of here maybe um you know i think it's all going to be very community based and what what does the community have um where there's room for it and interest for it and you know, room for another great community gathering place and a drinking establishment i think that's going to be very situationally specific yeah i'm always surprised well, I work for it because i can't like no one can predict the world right now oh man i've i can't believe how often whether i'm talking to or hop Hop grower friends or, or dealers or malt house, or I, I can't tell you how many times in the last six months I've said, I, I've frankly, I have no idea. Yeah. And, and I've been forecasting and contracting, you know, into the future for a long time with, with pretty good certainty. And right now, I'm, it, unpredictable is the perfect word. It's no idea so I, what's going to happen. I know our listeners can't see, but can you see what this is? It's a magic eight ball. The magic eight ball. And we, I jokingly gave these to a bunch of staff. It was during 2020. And that was our running joke. We'd be like, what do we do next? And we'd be like, I don't know. And we'd pick the magic eight ball up. And <laughs> so I keep it on my desk as a reminder, but it's totally like, who fucking knows? This the magic eight ball knows as well as anybody else. It so really if you ever have give me a call, I'll give it a shake. <laughs> I, I find it harder and harder to tell our story. And I'm, you know, I'll admittedly say I'm nowhere near marketing and it's not, not my jam at all. Um, but it's people don't know who's who and, and what you stand yeah. for outside of, you know, the immediate community. You talk about the community gathering space. 
folks that come visit our breweries understand. They see the charitable work we do in the Odell Outreach and the Allagash program. And, you know, our purpose is to build community through beer. That's what we're, that's our whole reason for being, right? Um, but it's hard to communicate with the end consumer. It's harder and harder, it seems, to get to the end consumer to kind of explain why you should support this business when you're making your, your beverage alcohol decisions and, and why it's important to, to buy local and why it's important to, you know, support independent businesses. It's uh, it, it seems a lot easier, not very long ago to kind of tell your story and, and get it across. I feel like there's someone somewhere has done a really good job of mixing things up. So you can't tell what's what and, and what's in a, and a beverage and where it comes yeah. from. Yeah. And then you factor in on top of that, the, just the unbelievable amount of choices that uh, alcoholic uh, alcohol drinker has yeah. when they go to the store. And it's, it's the 10,000 craft breweries that play a role in that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But so do all the other choices that, that consumers have now, you know, um, but whether that's, you know, canned cocktails or seltzers or whatever um, it's just, it's, it's hard, hard to navigate all those choices, I think. And you all have stayed laser focused on, on beer throughout all this change. You didn't jump into the seltzer world. Is that, is that your intent moving forward is to just continue to get better with what you do so well and focus on that excellence and, or are you also looking at the R and D side and trying to, trying to attack that new drinker? Yeah, we mostly are, um, we're, you know, it, this may not be necessarily the best long-term thing, but we're definitely focused on things we're excited to make. And that was always the thing for us with Seltzer is it just, we weren't, it's not something that excited me. And, and again, Rob, as the owner here, like, he's just like, no, I don't, that's not something that interests me. I know we could, we could make some money selling these. You know, the margins right. are good, right? Even um, easy to make, doesn't, you know, not a lot of investment, but it just didn't feel true to what we wanted to do. Um, but we also recognize that, yeah, the drinker is changing. So we're still thinking about other things. We started making a cider in the last two years. Right now it's a hard cider. That's just, just sold here at the tasting room only. Um, and still right now we're just doing that with only main grown apples and pressed at a local press. So it's still very, uh, very small and it would be almost impossible to scale it up to a, a nationwide release and do it the same way. Right. Uh, um, you know, we're, we, we've, we've like you guys, we, we have a winery. I use my quotes to call it a winery because all yeah. we're making right now is, is cider. And we've dabbled a little bit with a couple other fruited, like a blueberry R and D blueberry wine, R and D like honey, honeyberry wine, stuff like that. But still it's super small, like only on site at this point. But, and part of that was, um, dipping our toe in the R&D side of things. And part of it is recognizing that even in our tasting room, which is only a small part of our business, um, we get people in here all the time, every day who say, do you have anything else that's not beer? Yeah. Whether that's a, a gluten issue or just a preference issue or whatever it may be. So um, that was really our response to that. But our tasting room is a reflection of society. So um yeah, we our uh, our winery is right next door. It's really uh, it's it's extremely small as well, and it it's just part of our our community, our outside outdoor space. 
and uh, that it's the exact same thing for us. We had enough people asking, what do you have that's gluten-free? What do you have that's not beer? And it's like, and then we had the internal passion for fermentation in general. Yeah. We have uh, one coworker in particular, you, you know, Matt Bailey, I think yeah. uh, he's our head engineer. He all of a sudden couldn't drink beer. He had a barley allergy that he developed. And, you know, here we are, Matt loves beer and is an incredible coworker and a big piece of who we are. And the guy's like, Hey, what if we made wine? So we just chased that passion and it's in fermentation. And, and we went for it and did a couple of things, got a license and converted the old tombstone building next door into the tiniest winery you could think of. But, but it's been a lot of fun and we're getting grapes from, you know, Roy farms and, and Gail Goshi and, and things like that. So, uh, but our biggest seller is a guava spritz, which is, you know, no, nowhere near traditional wine. Right. Yeah. But, but people need, need options. You know, yep. we understand you can't be everything for everybody, but focusing on, on what we do best in beer and then having that little secondary outlet right next door seems to make sense for us, but it's gonna It's going to be a challenge moving forward to figure out how we get, keep people interested in beer. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Well, beer has survived uh, lots of up and downs as a beverage for a very long time. So yep. I'm quite confident that a hundred years from now, people will still be drinking, uh, drinking flavorful craft beer in some capacity. Absolutely. And that's one of the benefits you mentioned. Rob didn't want to get into seltzer because um, he just wasn't into it. That's one of the benefits of being independent, right? Is you can make some of these decisions that keep you true to your purpose and, and who you are culturally without always chasing kind of the, the easier buck. So I, I look at that as a, as a big benefit of, of staying independent. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad to hear you. Yeah, guys I, I think to put it bluntly, if we were to be acquired by, you know, a investment firm, a large global business of some type, you know, they'd come in and they'd, they'd, they'd cut a whole bunch of stuff within the first couple months instantly because there's whether it's employee benefits or a philanthropy program or the wild and sour beer program we do next door, yeah. like all of those things on, on a, on a PNL would look bad. So, you know, if all you're looking for is chasing a, a return on investment, there's a lot of things we do here that don't meet, meet that model, right? At least a direct financial return on investment. I fully believe it has other returns on investment outside of a, of a, you know, quarterly dividend um but yeah for real that's the nice thing about independence for sure yeah and, and like you mentioned earlier you know we we need to be profitable to do all the cool stuff we want to do but it, it's more that blended approach i mean we still make that barrel age freak here too but i'm sure you guys have noticed that that consumer taste has changed pretty dramatically in the fruited sour world i mean you couldn't we couldn't make enough of it for a while and you guys were we're known with cool ship program for, you know, some of the best, best beers in the world in that, in that arena. Do you see a drop off in the, in the demand for that kind of stuff? Do you see a, a less interest, more interest? I mean, what, what are you seeing in, in Maine? Yeah, we definitely, beer program? definitely see some, some loss in interest for sure versus kind of the heyday for those uh, wild and punky beers, which might've been like, 2010, 2011, 12, something like that. I mean, we actually we do a release here and we'd have a line out the door. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. People wait waiting at six in the morning to get a sample, et cetera. And we saw it starting to drop on the bottle side, uh, even pre-COVID. 
and so we're kind of monitoring so we were still making about the same volume of of some of these sour funky beers and we were we started like okay bottles aren't doing as much and i frankly i think that has a lot more to do with consumer choice than it does like necessarily like people don't like that beer as much i mean if you think about 10 15 years ago if you wanted a a flavorful beer that could be sour it could be something else you had choices but you know a lot of choices now if you want a beer that's packed with flavor aroma whatever whether that's a a, a super uh hoppy new england style ipa or a pastry stout or a kettle sour or a rtd or a canned cocktail you've got lots of choices you have so yeah. many choices if you're looking for like a, a a strong flavor experience so i think that's more what it's about is more about like not necessarily, a I think, but another way, like, like supply and demand, like demand, I think is still there for that type of beverage, but the supply is just outstripped demand. Yeah. Uh, but we, we, we shifted a bunch of our volume of those beers to kegs around like late 2019, 2020. And then, you know, of course that was a bad idea because no one wanted kegs anything for a while, period of time. But the good news side of things is that we, um, we're still making as many varieties of these beers, honestly, even more, but the volume of each bottling run or keg run is smaller. And we've really moved to, instead of shipping out a pallet or two pallets of this beer out to our wholesaler network, we'll still do that if there's a demand for it, but we're, we're more focused on selling them on site. So we kind of created this new thing that we have in our wild barrel room called the seller's experience where it's like a sit down tasting. You talk about the beer. You like really, truly tell the story because that's the thing, as you know, like you need for people to appreciate what they're drinking. They need to understand what went into it. And that's a hard thing to explain at shelf. Um, whereas here on site, we can. So our sales of those type of beers on site are doing very well. It's just we're not seeing the sales of them in the marketplace as much as we used to. Yeah, that's uh that's a really interesting take. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The flavor option uh, perspective, because yeah, the, I mean, the smoothie sour, the pastry stout, like all these, the small, even just if you stay within beer, all yeah. the, the little breweries that have come up with these innovative yeah. flavorful offerings that you can really only serve on premise without, you know, exploding bottles or cans right. <laughs> have uh, yeah, that's that fills that, that niche to some degree. But I know a lot of what you're doing on the sour beer program is kind of steeped in history and your connection to Belgium. And, you know, you were really helpful last year when we took our group on their their five year trip to Belgium um, and put me in touch with some folks. And I appreciate that. But maybe you can speak to that kind of the roots of, of what you guys do and your connection to Belgium and how that's a big piece of Allagash. Yeah, I mean, it's been a piece from from the beginning when Rob opened the brewery. Uh, he opened the brewery and Allagash White was the only beer he made. And he really wanted to, he had had, um, he had had classic styles like Hogarden and and Cellus White, which is made in Texas, well, actually still is made in Texas. Um, and, and, but other than that, no one was really making a beer like that in the US. And he really wanted to like open up with something that was different than what was available at the time, which the limited craft beer at the time was English style ales mostly. In, in our area. And so he led with that beer. And then I don't know if he at that point would have said, I'll forever be a Belgian inspired brewery, but we kind of built on that from there. We, you know, our next beer was a double 
about you know, Trappist double or beer at next beer after that was a triple, et cetera. And we've kind of really embraced the culture of uh, defined as Belgian style brewing um, really from the beginning. And I think that I, I would guess almost all craft breweries, whether they necessarily realize it or not, take influence from that tradition most anyway, uh, because a lot of, you know, one of the things I love about the Belgian brewing is this is the kind of the spirit of innovation, the spirit of using different ingredients and different styles. And yes, there's classic styles of beer, like a white beer or a triple, but there's also Orval, for example, which is just Orval. It's not a, no, no one says what beer style Orval is. It's just Orval, right? So there's this tradition of just outside the box brewing. So that's kind of been part of our philosophy of beer making from the beginning, really, and still to this day. And yes, you know, we make a American style IPA now, but, you know, we still our process of coming up with new beers is very much in a there are no we don't have a box to live in. It's everything's wide open and we really appreciate that side of things. And then, you know, as we grew, we were looking for fun ways to uh, re reward employees and connect with employees. And we flat out stole the idea from New Belgium Brewing that because they were taking uh, uh, employees who had been at the brewery for five years. And we basically said, that's a great idea. Let's copy that. Um, you know, such a great company and cool idea. So so we started, I think, I'm trying to remember the first year. I think it was like 2009, maybe was the first year we did a trip. And it was it was two employees, myself and Rob and two employees. And then every year we've done it since. And some trips have been about so if you're at the company, regardless of role, after five years, you get to go on this trip. And some year, I think the biggest year we had was like 18. Um, so it kind of coincides with how heavily we hired five years prior and whether or not those people are still with us or not. Um, and we just go over and tour breweries and eat Belgian food and drink Belgian beer and see sites. And um, it's been our tradition here that, you know, Rob and I go on every trip um, he calls me dad because I'm the, I'm like the planner. I'm the one who's like, <laughs> we're going next. And I have all the money and so on and so forth. So I'm like the tour guide. Um, but it's, when I stop and think about it, it's, it's frankly, from my perspective, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that I get to do this every year. Like when I tell people outside of the industry that I go to Belgium every year and drink beer and with my coworkers for basically a week, it's, it's, it's like stupid. It's stupid that I get to do this. It's like so fortunate. Um, but the other thing that's, it's become such a great part of our culture here where, you know, people, we, we had, um, uh, we have four new employees starting today. Actually, I just met them earlier. And my guess is if they haven't already, they will in the next few months talk about when they go to Belgium and we'll go to Belgium together because we started together and it becomes this kind of thing. And we go to some different places every year, but we go to some similar places every year. So when people are getting ready to go, they're like, oh, you're going to love here. And then they come back and they get to say, oh, did you go here? Like, um, and then, you know, packaging people being in the bond with sales team versus engineering team, like just a collecting group. It's just a truly amazing part of what we get to do here. Yeah, that, that's that's great stuff, man. I, I was fortunate enough. My wife worked at New Belgium for, for years, so I got to go. I think it was 2000, uh, went to the, the Belgium trip with New Belgium. I, Peter had just started at, at Peter Brugard, oh, just started at New Belgium. So we got, we got an amazing tour of Orval and Didala, and it was, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, but every time I get to go there, it's, uh, it's invigorating, it's reinvigorating to see that these breweries aren't, you know, 
heavy growth engine type breweries. It is about innovation and the local culture and community. And, and uh, they're just doing such cool stuff. Some of it's traditional, some of it's not. Uh, it, I love geeking out with the the brewers over there. It's a it's a special opportunity. I'm I'm psyched you guys still get to do that as a company, um, and yeah, that, that has it, such an impact. Yeah, one other thing I'll just say that's been interesting to see over the years of us going there is like we as a as a breweries at Allagash and so many other American breweries draw this inspiration from from these Belgian brewers who've been you know whether they've been doing it for you know generations or just a short period of time. But now you see that you, when you go back there now, you see like beer styles like kettle sours and northern style IPAs being made yeah. by Belgian breweries, which is yeah. kind of fascinating where it's it's not necessarily come full circle. But um, they draw a ton of inspiration from craft beer in the U.S. and the cult, the, the growth and the interest level in in craft beer in the U.S. is actually quite a bit higher than it is in Belgium. Like there's not like a craft beer following in there as there is here ironically right it, it's a trip isn't it to think like here we are these like startup scrappy craft brewers in the u.s and we, we have an influence over over such a historic traditional incredible brewing community like oh wow, wow. i mean i yeah. saw simcoe ipas in germany you know like wow yeah. that's that's incredible you know yeah. we we're pilot brewing with some of the first simcoes you know totally. <laughs> it's a trip well, man, I, I want to thank you for being such a, a strong leader in the industry. Again, really appreciate the time today. Uh, I know it's not, you know, you're a busy man with all your all the things you do, both at work and outside of work. Uh, you've contributed so much. You're one of the most respected people in the business. And, and again, I truly want to thank you for taking this time. And then uh, for those who don't know, Jason might just be the best uh, men's league hockey player in uh, craft brewing. That is most definitely not true. <laughs> I do love a good game of hockey. And uh, the last couple, I'm, I'm sorry you missed it in, in, at the CBC this year, but we'll, we'll be back. And if you're able to go to Vegas next year, we're already trying to sort a location for the Brewers hockey. Oh, uh, count me in. Count me in. Uh, just, I did that on a whim when we were in, uh, in Minneapolis, but uh, it's, been, it's so much fun. You were there. It was so much That was fun. a blast. That was the best part of the CBC for me. Yeah. yeah. Right on, man. Well, thanks again. I, I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. All right. Take care, man. Cheers. See ya. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A valleyhops.com.